Okay, well, hi everyone, good evening. I guess I should get in front of this. Um, so I was up here teaching three weeks ago and I forgot to even introduce myself. So I am Andrea Howe and my family has been at New City for 10 years. This church has been a huge blessing in all of our lives. We love this church. Um, I have been married to my husband, Jeff, for 23 years. Get married at a year like 2000 and you'll always be able to count that up really quickly. <laughs> so, you know, wait for the next turn of the century. And we have a son who is a senior at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and he is a theology major. So that is way convenient when you're teaching a lesson. And I'm like, hey, let me run this by you. Um, so he, and then I have a daughter who is a uh, freshman at Wake Forest. And then, of course, I have Lexi, who is a senior in high school. And so she's navigating the waters of college admissions and where she'll go. So that's a little bit about us. And tonight, we are going to talk about Kinsman Redeemer. And what a wonderful lesson we had. If you had a chance to go through that lesson, that was a very thorough lesson. So thorough, in fact, I thought, what might I talk about that you have not already studied? And um, I thought a lot about that. And so for me, one of the things that I need to know when I am studying something is I need context. I want to understand where did this come from? What is this all about? And so tonight we are going to begin by talking about where did this come from? So let's see. Oh, it's the down button. So if you'll remember, we've said this is kind of our statement that runs a thread through the book of Ruth as well as the book of Esther, right? That we'll get to in the next semester. And I'm just gonna run through these, these four areas. I think we're touching on all of these four areas. I'm not necessarily going to overtly say these. Um, we are certainly gonna see that God is a purposeful author. So let's talk about the Kinsman Redeemer. And we're gonna go back a little bit of a ways, and we're gonna go back to Egypt. Remember when the Israelites moved to Egypt. And remember why they moved to Egypt? Because of a famine. I thought that was interesting, thinking about that, because we know that Naomi and her family moved to Moab because of a famine. So famine moves people, and really, there's a thread in this whole book that relates to hunger and that relates to things like Bethlehem being the house of bread and Jesus being the bread of life, but that's a little rabbit trail. So these folks are in Egypt. They've moved there. They begin to prosper and they begin to multiply. And Pharaoh, who they had moved there under initially, dies and a new Pharaoh comes in and he's very threatened by this. And he does not like seeing them multiply. And he enslaves the Israelites. And he is very harsh. Um, when we think about the phrase, more bricks, less straw, this is where it comes from. Produce more with less to produce it with. And so the Israelites, they cry out to God and they ask for deliverance. And God raises up Moses as their deliverer. And through a series of amazing events, like it's so worth reading, again, if you haven't gone and read that recently, 
there will be a series of plagues and God's, God hardens Pharaoh's heart and he eventually, Pharaoh relents. Um, there's a final plague where all the firstborn sons on the door, if the door frames do not have the blood on them, those sons die. That happens in Pharaoh's house. And he finally has enough. And he says to Moses, take these people and go, leave. So off they go, 600,000 of them, men, women, and children leave Egypt. And as they go out, they listen to God and they take the gold and the silver. And so they leave and they begin their trek toward the promised land. Um, it doesn't take Pharaoh long before he thinks, you know what, I just lost all my free labor. And it also says that they are left, uh, Egypt has, is left impoverished. And so they decide to pursue the, uh, the Israelites. Pharaoh gets chariots and horses, and off they go in pursuit of the Israelites, and God miraculously again delivers the Israelites through parting the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk across dry land with walls of water on the sides of them, and God delivers them through this, and here the Egyptians um, come behind them, and the walls of waters collapse on them, and they are vanquished. And so begins the Israelites' 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And they're going to wander for different reasons, including disobedience. But after that 40 years of wandering, they are now at, the, at Mount Sinai, and Moses gives them the law. And the law includes things like the kinsman redeemer. And that is the context for this. The other thing I'll point out to you is under the promises part that way back in Genesis 17, God made a covenant with Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant covered a few things. One thing he said is that you will be a father to many nations. And he also promised that they would um, inhabit and possess the land of Canaan. Do you remember where, what's in the land of Canaan? The town of Bethlehem. The place where this whole story is set is what God had promised to Abraham. So we see a couple of laws that relate directly to the kinsman redeemer that I want to pull out that we looked at this week in our study. The first one was about possessions and that was Leviticus 25. Do you remember that? What he talks about in there? It talks about the year of Jubilee. God is providing a way for people who, for whatever reason, because they lack the funds to keep their uh, property, for it to return back to them. In fact, it says they're to go back and live on the land and live with their clan. God intends that the Israelites keep possession of their land for many reasons. It is a sign of stability for a, a people group who has been wandering nomadically. He wants them to be stable. Remember, we start in the garden in this amazing place, and we leave the garden. We leave the garden because of sin, but God wants to give them a new, fruitful place to live, flowing with milk and honey. So God provides a way for this land to stay 
um, within the possession of the people he has given it to. And he also, within that, provides a way for it to be redeemed if the person who has lost the land has a close relative who can come up with the money to basically redeem the land. So we see the land, so that's the possessions. And then we see how God speaks to the people, or maybe we wanna say lineage. If we skip over to Deuteronomy 25, God specifically lays down some laws relating to someone who dies. So if a man dies without an heir, the way that his lineage will continue and his namesake will continue is that his brother will marry his widow. This is strange for us, I know. And they will have heirs. And the firstborn son will carry on the namesake of the dead brother. And that is how God intends for the namesake to continue. So this is all part of God's plan for he loves his people, the Israelites. He has rescued them miraculously. He has um, been gracious to them, even as they've been in error and they've been in sin, but he gives them laws. And they seem so, um, sometimes so strange to us as we read them, but there's a purpose to them. So now we go back to the book of Ruth. In the third chapter, this term is used, kinsman redeemer. And I want to take us back to last week when Christine was talking to us about, remember how Ruth comes back and she has all this grain. And Naomi's like, just what probably asks Ruth about what we would ask our children who show up with something that you're like, where have you been? Where'd you get that? She's like, where'd you get that? And Naomi, or I'm sorry, Ruth explains, I've been over at Boaz's fields because remember we're told she just happened to be gleaning in Boaz's fields. So um, Naomi tells her he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And friends, this is really to me the point of reversal. This is when we find out that these women who had had so much done to them, they were so subject to the cultural constraints and the cultural um, difficulties of being widows and not having heirs and being foreigners. Both of them had experience being uh, foreigners. Suddenly, they have a potential kinsman redeemer. A man who is a man who is worthy. We're told in chapter 2 he is called worthy. He's a man of wealth, but he's also a kind man. He's already protected and provided for Ruth. And so Ruth and Naomi, they get together. They make a bit of a plan. And, you know, Ruth will go and ask Boaz to become the kinsman redeemer. And he agrees. But do you remember what he says? There's somebody else who's closer than me. And so what we love about Boaz, although in that moment, Ruth might not have loved this, he said, we're doing this the right way. And so they go out and they bring together the men of the town and he presents this to them. And the closest redeemer says, aha, yes, I'll be glad to redeem the land. 
And Boaz says, and you will acquire Ruth and uh, for the sake of carrying on the namesake of her dead husband. And he says, never mind. I have an heir. I already have a plan. And so Boaz is able to uh, move into that space. So let's talk about what does this mean for a, f a few different groups. What does this mean for Ruth and Naomi? Well, we've talked about this a lot, and I've talked about it tonight, their lowly status. I mean, they're in a situation where what can they do to help themselves? They really can do nothing. It's not like, hey, Ruth, you go to college, get a good degree, and then you can get a job, or hey, let's open a business. There's really nothing that these women can do to change their situation. They're doing everything they can, Ruth is out gathering day by day to get enough food for them. It's really a very tenuous, I would think very scary situation to be in. Their status is low. Nobody is going to really respect them much, if you will. And for them to have a kinsman redeemer means that all of that, again, is reversed. So what does that mean? For the Israelite people, what does the kinsman redeemer law mean for them? And I've talked a little bit about it. It means that God is taking care of them. God is fulfilling his promise he made to them. He is going to provide them with land. He's going to give them a way to retain land even when there are difficulties and unforeseen circumstances. He's giving them a way to continue on that the Israel, Israelite people are not going to leave the face of the earth. There is provision for the lineage. For the non-Israelite people, what does this mean? Well, Ruth, who is a Moabite, has now become part of the Israelite family. And so for some of us, probably all of us or most of us in this room, what that means is we see that we are able to join in as God's people as well. Ruth prefigures the Gentiles being part of the church. And, we'll, and that's much further down the line, but it's an important point to understand that Ruth, this Moabite woman, this lowly widow whose status is so low, is actually becomes part of God's family. And then what does it mean for us? So in the same way that Ruth and Naomi had such, such a difficult and tenuous um, status, if you will, so lowly, so unable to help themselves. Friends, that's us in a spiritual sense. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God. And so what this tells us is Boaz points to a greater redeemer, right? The one, Jesus himself. So how does Jesus fit this criteria to be our redeemer? Well, first of all, Jesus is our nearest relative. Jesus is the son of man. He chose to be born in a humble stable. He is Emmanuel, he is God with us. In the message, I love this so much, in 14, or I'm sorry, in John uh, 1.14, it says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That's Jesus. He chose to come close to us because he desired to redeem us. 
And then in Hebrews 4.15, it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. So we see Jesus is our close relative redeemer. Jesus has the means of redemption. Remember, as Jesus went to the cross and he suffered, he completed the work. And in John 29, 30, he says, after he took the wine, it is done complete. In other versions, it is finished. Jesus had the means to do it all. He completed it. There's nothing left undone. Everything we need for redemption, Jesus did. And then finally, Jesus has the desire to accomplish redemption. We see that, that he, again, he talks about, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And I think about that um, song, this is going to date me and I'm not going to sing it, but he could have called down 10,000 angels. Jesus could have done so many things and he willingly walked through this process, friends. He did it for us, for redemption. Um, and we see in the garden, um, as he prayed and said to the Father, you know, three times, you know, take this cup from me, but if it is your will, I'll do that. And so we see how he fulfills the kinsman redeemer. So finally, I want to address the question because this is how my brain works. So I got to know kind of a little bit of a context. So we see that Jesus is a redeemer. I want to talk about the need. So what is our need for a redeemer? And I thought about this. So now we've been in the book of Genesis. We've gone into some of the books of the law. We've been in a gospel and epistle. So it's only right that we go to Revelation to end the night. There is a beautiful picture of what happens in the heavenlies that tells us about our need for a redeemer. Remember, this is a revelation that John receives about what is going to unfold. And in uh, Revelation 4, he is uh, ushered in to the throne room, and God is in there, and there are many things happening. I won't go into all of those. There's just a lot of things. But he talks about at one point, and, and day and night, there are creatures who are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. I mean, this is a place of incredible worship and reverence. This is the throne room. And John says that he saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And you know what John says? He says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders told him, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He's able to open the scrolls and the seven seals. And finally, we see that there is a lamb that has been slain. Jesus himself, our kinsman redeemer, who has done it all, 
is there and he takes the seal and he is worthy to open the scrolls. And friends, this is the why, this is the need. There is a day where we, we have to know that our names are in that book of life that, and that there is one who can open the scrolls. And so Boaz is a very worthy man and he is worth, I think, some of our admiration. But don't get confused. Boaz is just a type. He points to a greater redeemer who waits for us and has redeemed us. Okay, so with that, I'm going to pray, and we're going to go to class. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you are present throughout all of history, and you are weaving things together. And God, we thank you for the way that you illuminate your plans to us. Lord, I pray for us as we go to our classes tonight. Amen.